Hello and welcome to Family Renewal. I'm Israel Wayne, your host. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as we take a look at faith, family, and culture, all through the lenses of a biblical worldview. This program is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Family Renewal Podcast. I am Israel Wayne, and this week we have a guest that really needs no introduction, and yet I'm going to go ahead and introduce him anyway. Um, Dr. George Barna is the Director of Research and co-founder of the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. He has been the leading researcher of really all things related to the Christian church in the United States over the last 40 years. He has written over 50 books, including numerous award winners and New York Times bestsellers. Uh, He's the founder of the Barta Group, which I believe he sold in 2009, and uh, has really been the one who has set the standard for Christian research related to the church. Uh, He has a brand new book out that is called Raising Spiritual Champions. Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul. This is one of the most important books that I have read in a very long time. Uh, Dr. Barna, welcome to the Family Renewal Podcast. Well, thanks, Israel. I appreciate you having me on. Good to be with you. I've read a number of your books over the years, and I would say over the last probably 30 years, your research has been very helpful to me in what I do. I do a lot of parenting seminars, and I also write books on Christian parenting and biblical worldview. And so your materials have been tremendously helpful for me uh, over those three decades that I've been doing this. But this book to me feels like it's a culmination of perhaps all the things that you've done for four decades. Like it feels to me like it's just kind of pushed you towards this book. Is, Is that somewhat accurate? Yeah, I think that's a very astute observation, actually. Uh, you know, a, a few years ago when I... Uh, joined up with Arizona Christian University, and we started the Cultural Research Center. The reason for doing that was that I realized I'm getting toward the end of the trail here. I don't know when the Lord will take me back, but I've got fewer years in front of me than behind me. I know that. And so I started thinking about, well, what would it mean to finish well? And in thinking about that, uh, realized, you know, it all comes down to worldview. And when you talk about worldview, really the issues relate primarily to children because a person's worldview is developed by the age of 13. My research found that 30 years ago. And so given that, I thought, okay, well, if the Lord's going to allow me to speak to his people a few more times, what are the key messages that I need to put out there? And I wanted to do them kind of in order of importance in case he pulls the plug, you know, more quickly than I anticipated. And uh, this to me was the single most important message that I could put out there, that we really have to focus on enabling children to become disciples of Jesus. And one of the key elements in that process is their worldview. You can't be a real genuine sold out disciple of Jesus Christ without a biblical worldview. And really that it's parents responsibility It's not a local church's responsibility. It's not a community's responsibility. It's parents. And so I wanted to do research around those themes that would look at 
where are children at, where are parents at, where is worldview at, and how do we bring all these together to help parents become the chief disciple makers of their children. They can, they can disciple others as well. I pray they do. But first and foremost, they got to take care of their kids. And so that's really what was the genesis of that book. You and I have had the opportunity in the last two years to be keynote speakers at two of the same conferences. We were both um, speaking in 2022 at the Arizona Christian Homeschool Conference in Phoenix, and then uh, this year at the uh, in 2023 at the American Family Association Conference in Tupelo. So I had an opportunity to hear you speak both times, and. I've read your research um, for three decades now as you have studied biblical worldview and the trends in the United States. And um, I, I always think I brace myself when I hear a Dr. Barna message and I brace myself and I think, OK, there's just no way that he can shock me. There's no way that I can be surprised <laughs> by the numbers. And then I always am. Um, and and am, am I correct to remember that you say that we're we're sitting somewhere about half uh, of where we were in terms of the percentages of biblical worldview, like 25 years ago? Uh, currently it's at about one third. Uh, wow. it, we're down to 4% at this point. And, uh, and it looks like it's going to continue to drop even a little bit more based on the research I've been doing with teenagers and adolescents. So yeah, it's, it's not a pretty picture. So as you've seen this trend, um, continue. And, and I remember you saying it, I think American Family Association Conference, you said something like, you know, if you think you're depressed, just think how I feel. Because <laughs> you, You've been looking at these it's numbers true. closer than anyone for four decades. Uh, but but as you have looked at it, I guess what I feel like in reading this new book, uh, Raising Spiritual Champions, it feels to me like you're saying that there's not like a whole bunch of different ways that we get out of this mess there's kind of one primary way. And I just want to quote from what you wrote on page 10. You said, quote, raising children to be spiritual champions, that is followers of Jesus Christ, is the only real hope for any nation, family, or individual. It is during the person's first dozen years on earth that they amass the knowledge, relationships, experiences, and wisdom that shape their lifelong perspectives on how the world works their place in that world and how they will carry out their vision of self and life for the duration of their stay on the planet. Um, I came to this decision 30 years ago that because um, I had done some work in youth ministry and I, I came to the realization that we were getting to these teens too late. And I realized that I have to do, I have to change my focus to how do we get parents to disciple their own children and help equip their children with a biblical worldview. So this book is like super validating for what I've been doing the last 30 years. Um, but, but is it, I mean, are we overstating it to say that, that this is perhaps the most important focus that we could have in terms of effort right now is parents discipling their children and giving them a biblical worldview. Is that overstating our case? No, I don't think it is. And the way that I often talk about it is that America has a, a, a major crisis at hand, and it's not an economic crisis, it's not a political crisis, it's not a, a health care crisis, it's a worldview crisis. And if we don't address that, 
then America will simply follow the trend of other nations in Europe and Asia and, and elsewhere where they've given up on the God of Israel and they've decided that narcissism is the way to go, that we know what's best for us. Nobody else does. There could be nothing else that would know better than we could know for ourselves. And so, yeah, we really do need to pay attention to that. And if we're going to solve that crisis, the way we solve it is through children investing in their lives, recognizing that this turnaround isn't going to happen overnight. It's going to take decades. But at the same time, recognizing that's because we didn't get in the pit we're in overnight. This has been on the decline for decades. And so while we've just sat by and watched this happen, it's time for us now to wake up and do something about it. And people say, well, why don't you focus on adults? Because adults generally don't change. The research that I've been doing for more than 40 years shows that by the time somebody reaches their teens, they have their core beliefs in place. They have their core values in place. They have their desired lifestyles and outcomes for life in place. Can it ever change? Of course. God can change anybody at any time. However, as a sociologist looking at data, I tend to report on averages. And I will tell you that on average, adults don't change. What we found is that most adults die with the same worldview they had at age 13. A little different here or there, but you know, very much intact. And so that's why it's so critically important that we focus on children and get it right during the developmental years. I've heard you say this a few times now recently, and this has been a paradigm shift in my own thinking. I remember years ago talking to parents and them expressing how important it was for them to get their students into a good Bible college so they could begin to develop a biblical worldview. And I remember some experts, some Christian leaders were saying, well, you know, at that time, it's it's actually a little late to start working on worldview formation. We need to start looking at ages 13 to 18 and getting them into great organizations like Worldview Academy or Summit Ministries or groups like that, which, which is good. And, and I support that. But you're saying that for to a great extent, their worldview is locked down by age 12. I mean, not not prophetically, not, you know, absolutely, because as you said, God can change anyone's heart. So so I don't want anyone to take this out of context. I mean, God can move on anyone's heart at any age. So but you're saying statistically, can you unpack that just a little bit more for us? Because I think even for myself as a parent, a lot of us, we we don't begin to think about worldview formation until the teen years. And you're saying that's not the time to start. You're, you're actually talking about beginning this uh, before they even reach the age of two. Yeah. And, and the reason for that, Israel, is when you look at how a child develops uh, at 13, 15, 18 months of age, somewhere in that range, a little different for each child. But in that basic range, what happens is children start making decisions for themselves. And keep in mind, as I talk about this, that all a worldview is, is a decision-making filter. Mm -hmm. And so what we're talking about developing for the child is their decision-making filter that they'll carry with them through the rest of their life. Now, at that early stage of their life, they're starting to ask questions about who am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? 
what kind of legacy do I want to leave behind? What kind of impact do I want to have? You know, all of these kinds of big questions. And they don't think of them that way, but they're they're biting off little bits and pieces of those questions every day as they start making their choices. You know, and it's simple things about, do I want to eat more food? Maybe I shouldn't eat more food. You know, do I want to hit my brother back? Eh, maybe I shouldn't hit my brother. You know, but there are reasons behind all these very simple and in some cases seemingly simplistic decisions that they're making. But ultimately, all those things bubble up into what we will call a worldview. All of their core understandings of how the world works, how they fit within it, where they're trying to go, how they're going to get there, what influences there will be upon all the choices and opportunities they have. And so the, the, the whole framework here is to try to think of, you know what, when you make those choices, can they change? Yes, they can. And during those first 12 years, they do change. They shift quite a bit. But by the time you've reached the age of 12, you've had so many opportunities to re-examine and to change, uh, to throw out, to, you know, continue or to start a new search for an idea about how am I going to handle this idea? What, what do I make of this concept? By the time you reach the age of 13, you've pretty much figured it all out. At least you think you have. And at that point, when you start reaching your teens, you reach another phase of worldview, which is where you're not focused on developing worldview. 13 to 18, 13 to 20, 21, 22, that's where you start trying to figure out, now, how do I make sure that I consistently apply what I believe to be the case? How do I figure out how to articulate this for other people? Because then when you reach your mid to late 20s and beyond, you become an evangelist. Every American adult at that point becomes an evangelist. Sadly, they're not evangelizing for Jesus. They're evangelizing for themselves. What we tend to do is go out in the culture and say, you know what? Other people should be as smart and as capable as I am. So let me tell them what I believe. Let me tell them what I think. Let me tell them what I've experienced. Let me tell them how they can do the same things that I'm doing. And when other people do that, we feel affirmed we feel better about ourselves. When other people don't, we feel sorry for them because we think, ah, they're missing out. If only they knew what I knew. If only they would do what I would do because we think we're, we've got it figured out. So, you know, and, and then when you reach your mid-60s or so and beyond, that's when you sit back and re-examine and wonder, hey, how did I do? Did I get it right? And often those of us in that grandparenting stage, as we look at it, we go, oi, we missed it here. We blew it there. We could have done better here. And so then as we're working with our grandchildren or great-grandchildren, we kind of revise our worldview a little bit based on all the experiences we've had, somewhat greater objectivity, and to some extent, depending on the person's faith, fear about what's coming in the future and still wanting to make sure that we do the best we can you know, for whatever our faith motivations may be. So that's kind of the trail that we follow. But yeah, those first years are critically important. I think of worldview development as laying cement. You're pouring a foundation. And 
during those early years, you're still kind of moving the foundation around, smoothing it out, making sure it's level, it's proper. But by the age of 13, you figure, okay, I got that right. Let me move on to something else. That foundation hardens. Is it possible to come back and change part of the foundation? Yeah, but it's an awful lot harder because now you got to chip out the hard cement and then you got to prepare to put in some new cement and and make that uh, compatible with the old cement. It's a much more difficult process. Most people don't want to and they don't go through that process. We want to say two things simultaneously here uh, for parents who have teenagers or young adults that are prodigals. We're not trying to say there's no hope for your child. So we want to make sure that you continue to pray and continue to reach out to that young person with the love of Christ, um, because there is still hope for that young person uh, through the gospel of grace. However, for those of us who have children that are in that you know two-year-old to 12-year-old range, especially uh, we need to take this much more seriously than we have. I'm just going to read to you a quote that should seem very basic, but that unfortunately is not uh, in the way that we think, even as evangelical Christians. Page 14, Dr. Barna says, if you are a parent, then discipling your children is your primary responsibility in life. That's such a huge statement. And then he says, really? Exclamation point. If you are a grandparent, you have a tremendous opportunity to influence your grandkids. One of the things I point out is that the only two people groups in scripture who ever commanded by God to teach children are parents and grandparents. And yet um, you also say in this book that most Christian parents do not see the raising of their children, the biblical worldview of their children as being very important. Um, you, you see that you say that uh, really only 41% see re, uh, participation in religious life as being important, um, that, you know, really only a third are seeing the importance of worldview training for their children. Um, th this is shocking to me. I mean, I, I know it's not in one level because this is my work and this is what I do, but we're talking about even born again parents who don't see the spiritual formation and discipleship of their own children as being their primary responsibility. And you talk about outsourcing, that most parents have, have seen it as uh, acceptable and beneficial to just outsource the discipleship of their children. How did we get here, Dr. Barna? Well, a lot of it goes back to the worldview of adults in America. The fact that you know, more than nine out of 10 adults in America do not have a biblical worldview means that they're embracing ideas from other worldviews. And so much of those other worldviews push the idea that I'm the center of my world. And so what makes me happy is the right thing for me to do. And that nobody else should be able to tell me or, or limit me in terms of what I'm pursuing. So it's all very narcissistic. It's really all about taking care of self rather than children. So when we have children, our concept is, you know what, I love them. And, and one of the things we found in the research is, yeah, parents say they really love their children. And that's why they claim they're outsourcing parenting. What they want to do is they want to hire the best professionals they can to come alongside them as parents 
and train their mind, train their heart, train their soul, train their body, train all of these things because parents are kind of busy doing things that make themselves feel good. So, you know, there's this balance that they're trying to strike between taking care of the child that I love, taking care of myself and making it all work out in the end. So it's it's a, a difficult situation that we put ourselves in, which is not biblical, and that's why it's not working out. When we stray from God's principles, we invite chaos, we invite disaster, and that's what America is experiencing as a result of the worldview choices that we're making. That worldview being, no, there's not a God, that, God that's in charge of my life. No, I don't have to worry about what the Bible teaches. No, nobody can tell me what's best for me. Only I know. So I've got to pursue what makes me happy. You talked about in your book also that the primary concerns that parents have for their children are not necessarily spiritual formation and biblical worldview. It tends to be other priorities like their child's happiness, their child's academics, uh, the socialization of their children, uh, other things like that. Um, and, and you mentioned that this is true even of Christians and that many Christian parents essentially have the same values as the world, um, that they, they call themselves Christians, but in terms of the things that they want, they, they tend to be fairly humanistic pursuits. Uh, what's the remedy for this? Yeah, it... <laughs> discipleship isn't it yes <laughs> you know i mean it's, it sounds silly but i mean right, that, right. that's all we got that's you know? right i mean that's what jesus died for and that's what we're supposed to be pursuing and when we choose not to we you know reap what we've sown we've sown a, a bad lot of seed and, and we're getting bad stuff out of it so i mean really what it comes down to is if you're an adult and you're saying oh my gosh i want to be part of the solution not the problem well, that's easy enough. Dedicate yourself to being a committed follower of Jesus Christ. You know, in the book, I talk about the six times when Jesus defines what a disciple is. And, you know, just go back and look at those six elements and commit yourself to that. And then look at the Great Commission and recognize that, okay, it's not just for you. It's for you to spread that to other people, starting with your family, your children in particular, but uh, friends, work associates, everybody you can, you know, influence, that's what you got to do. I mean, th that's really the remedy. The remedy isn't having bigger churches. The remedy isn't having, you know, any of the other stuff that we often think we need. No, the remedy is that we confess that we're wanton sinners. Jesus is the only remedy. And that, uh, you know, our hearts should be broken by that sin. And when it is, then we repent. We say, I don't want to do it anymore. Give me the strength of the Holy Spirit so that I'm not going to continue giving in to temptation, then lead that different life. You use a word in your book uh, to describe what a disciple is that is one I don't find in most Christian books anymore. It's the word obedience. <laughs> and you mentioned that a true disciple is someone who is obedient to God and to his word. And um, I, I remember years ago, you wrote a book called Think Like Jesus. And you talk about in, in this book, uh, Raising Spiritual Champions, how we tend to live out the things that we actually believe. So the studies you've been doing for decades show that Christians don't believe the right things. And you say there's a, a correlation to 
Uh, you have to believe the right things to live the right things. But, but I think what we're seeing in this parenting process, as you just described, many parents, most parents, Christian parents even, don't have a biblical worldview. And so you can't pass on what you don't have. But, but to, to put this in the form of a question, um, I, I think most churches that I'm familiar with, evangelical churches, tend to equate Christianity as being simply something that you believe. And yet you're taking this into dangerous territory of saying that Christianity needs to be not merely something that we believe, but something that needs action. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of different ways to, to talk about that. I like to go back to those six things that Jesus said makes you a disciple. And when you look at them, uh, they all have to do with your behavior. Well, what's the genesis of that behavior? Yes, it's proper belief. You know, so we'll say he starts out, you know, talking about, yeah, believe what I teach. But, you know, when he talks about a disciple in John 8, he says, obey my principles, the principles that I've taught you. Obedience is action. You know, then he, in, in John 13, he talks about love other disciples. Love isn't just a concept. It's not an idea. It's an action. You know, in John 15, he talks about uh, produce a lot of spiritual fruit. Producing fruit is action based on belief about what that fruit should be and how you go about doing it. In Luke 14, he has three passages, three sections in that chapter where he talks about you cannot be my disciple unless, and the first thing he talks about is unless you love God so much so deeply, so profoundly, so robustly, that it seems like you hate everything else in comparison. Well, that's a behavior. It's not just, gee, I think I love God. It's like, no, prove to me that you love God. Show me that you love God. You know, then later in, in Luke 14, he has another section where he says about you cannot be my disciple unless you pick up your cross and carry it to follow me. You know, and in Roman society, what that contextually meant was that you're going to have to submit to the appropriate authority. Who's the appropriate authority? God himself. And so that act of submission is behavior. It's not just an idea. Oh, wouldn't it be good if I wasn't a sinner? No, it's like, come and show me you're not a sinner. You know, and then finally in Luke 14, he talks about how important it is that you surrender everything that you have in order to pursue his agenda, not your agenda, but his. You know, and surrender is an action. It's not a concept. And so all the things that Jesus talks about when he goes into discipleship are actions that are based on beliefs that are based on teachings that he gave us and we have in the word. But but that's why it's so critical that, that we understand you do what you believe. And my research has changed radically over the years because when I started out, you know, I was following some other researchers who, who I love and appreciate. But their whole thing was, well, let's just find out what people think, what they believe, what they say. And I did that for a few years. But but the disconnect between what we heard people saying and what we saw happening mm -hmm. was so profound, I thought, this is broken. That's and so, so that's when we shifted our research to saying, okay, you can tell me what you believe, but then we're going to follow up to find out, but what does that look like in practice? And if it's not in practice my conclusion is going to be, you don't really believe it. 
you say it maybe because it's the right thing to say in our culture, maybe because that's what you've been taught in your church or your family or, you know, from your friends. A, a lot of reasons why you might say that you believe that. But, you know, the whole issue of Christianity isn't just talk in the game, it's walk in the game. And so you've got to show what it looks like in practice. When you do that, it's through your beliefs that I, uh, I'm sorry, your behavior that I know what your beliefs are. So when we talk about behaviors or actions on the part of parents, you have a section on page 29 talks about doing what works in disciple making. And uh, you, you list a bunch of things here about investing in our children's relationships, prioritizing their spiritual development, upholding uh, the scriptures as being the final authority, creating appropriate boundaries, um, instilling the right kind of character and development, uh, recognizing the uniqueness of the child. I'm not going to read all of it, but influencing their choice of friends. thought that was interesting. Uh, you talk later about the importance of negating and, um, and, and working against harmful media influences, particularly, you know, the multimedia technology stuff, uh, helping them develop their spiritual growth, so on and so forth. I think what I hear from a lot of parents, if, if I were to suggest these things of things that you can do is I think a lot of parents just look at it as, hey, there's no guarantees in parenting, which I think you and I would both agree with that. But they would say, you know, it's just a matter of you just you just hope for the best and you pray and they're going to turn out how they're going to turn out. And you're saying that there actually are inputs that equate to outcomes statistically. Um, and and in your book, you outlined these as well as many more. Um do you actually believe that it matters what we do as parents or is it just sort of a, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do and you just hold your breath and hope for the best? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever in my mind or in the research that what we do makes a big difference. The choices that we make matter. Every choice has consequences. And when we are raising a child, our choices in terms of their life is going to have dramatic consequences. I've seen this. I mean, one of the most dramatic pieces of research I had the opportunity to do is to take uh, two samples of individuals, young adults who had grown up to become spiritual champions. They were in their 20s and 30s. And, and we interviewed them about what did, the, what did your parents do? Because you're the aberration in our culture today. So what happened there? And then uh, we asked them for permission. They allowed us to go back and talk to their parents if they were still alive. And we asked their parents, what do you think you did? Because you have an odd child. We're thrilled about it. But but what did you do? And when we put the things together, we found the conjunction of all of that. But I mean, definitely what we discovered is that these were parents who had a plan. They were very intentional. They were strategic. They had a plan. And, and the thing that really impressed me the most from talking to both the young adult spiritual champions and their parents was they agreed that the single most important thing their parents had done was they were consistent. If they taught their kids one thing, they modeled that same thing for their kids. If they said the Bible taught one thing, the parents always gave advice that was consistent with that biblical admonition. No matter what it was, they were always consistent. They didn't change as the child got older. They didn't change as other people in the church pressured them to think or do or believe something different. They remained consistent at all times, and they did that with their kids 
for the duration of the time that they had them under their roof. And that made such an impression on their children. And, and, and it, it, it gave them um, permission, if you will, to do something that was countercultural, because in their home, which was a place where they came to feel safe and understood and loved, they knew that that countercultural approach would be appreciated and celebrated. You mentioned a statistic that is just shocking in your book. And I want to share this because you say, and this is talking about outsourcing biblical worldview formation to children and youth ministry. You say on page 185, the CRC survey, this is a study that you did, revealed that only one out of every eight children's ministers, just 12% has a biblical worldview. And then you go on and list a whole bunch of statistics about what they believe and what they don't believe. And on page 187, you even say, this is a kind of a summary, uh, you know, after a whole list of things that are just shocking, you say, uh, by the way, barely half of them, 54% say that when they die, they're certain they'll live eternally with God because they have confessed their sins and accepted Christ as their savior. I mean, you're talking about entry level, the, like the most basic element of uh, of them even knowing that they're saved. You're saying that basically 46% of them aren't even sure that they're saved. And yet we're sending our children weekly to these people only 12 of whom have a basic nominal biblical worldview for them to be the ones who provide spiritual discipleship and formation for our, our children. Is this a big part of why we're seeing these stats decade after decade that we're not effectively discipling because we've chosen to outsource the discipleship instead of doing it ourselves to people who are really not biblically qualified to even be doing it? Yeah, that, that's that's a significant part of it. I, I don't I don't remember if I put it in the book or not. I say it when I speak, but um, it, it's actually more dangerous for you to bring your child to a Christian church today in America that if you want them to be a disciple of Jesus, than to keep them apart from that local church. That's not to say that there aren't some great children's ministries across the country. There are. We studied those. Uh, frankly, there aren't that many of them, but but I mean, they do exist. And I would say, if as a parent, you want the local church to help you in that venture, you've got to be very, very cautious, very careful. You've really got to dig deep and do your homework to figure out where are you bringing your children. But in addition to that, as the parent, you've even got to question yourself pretty deeply about what do I think success is going to be for my child in this church? Because one of the things I discovered from our research with parents is that when they bring their children to church, their idea of success is they're going to be safe, they're going to be happy, and they're going to meet other good kids. Now, if that's your criteria for what a good church is, you'll have no problem finding churches across the country. But if what you want to do is see your child uh, consistently discipled through Scripture, to become an ardent follower of Jesus, and for the pastor of that child's ministry to have consistent communication with you as a parent to find out what are you doing with your child to help them be, to become a disciple, because it's your job, his or her job at that church is simply to support you in that effort. It's not to take over the effort. 
And so given all of that, I mean, there are a bunch of things that you've got to invest time and energy and thought in before you enlist your child into any kind of a, a children's church ministry. Uh, finally, I, I want to read a quote where you talk about education because we outsource uh, if our children attend a school, 10,000 to 15,000 hours of their upbringing to, in many cases, people we don't even know. And I know that this quote uh, here on page 202 will resonate with many of my listeners. You say, we find that children who are homeschooled have the greatest probability of developing a biblical worldview, largely because they also have the highest probability of being raised by a devout biblical Christian. Children who attend Christian schools are the next most likely to develop a biblical worldview. It is possible, but unusual, for children who attend parochial, private, or public schools to become spiritual champions. And then this quote, I think, is so important. It is not the job of a Christian school to raise your child to be a spiritual champion, but it is their job to assist you in discipling that child. Rest assured that you will not find a public school dedicated to raising disciples of Jesus Christ. I appreciated that you were brave enough to address this issue in the book, because I know that that's one that churches like to just leave off, uh, pretend that that elephant in the room doesn't exist. Uh, but could you just comment on uh, over four de decades of watching this research? What, what do you feel about the importance of Christian education for Christian children? Well, if parents are serious about seeing their youngsters become followers of Jesus, you've got to look at every environment in which you're going to place them. And when you're talking about something like schooling, there's such an enormous amount of time and such a dramatic influence that that uh, set of opportunities has upon our children. We can't just wander into it lightly. We have to really think about the spiritual consequences of where we're going to put them for their education. Uh, you know, I get to study curriculum that's out there in schools and churches and so forth. And even a lot of the church-based or Christian school-based curriculum is not curriculum that you probably want your child to be exposed to. So given that so many teachers have no Christian training, many of them really don't have any Christian background, curriculum that gets used isn't the kind of content that's going to draw children toward Jesus, draw them toward the scriptures, draw them toward the Christian life. You've got to be asking the question, am I complicit in keeping them from Christ if I enroll them into schools that demonstrably aren't doing things that will lead them to Christ. So it's a big decision. It's a big challenge. One of the things I tell parents is, you know, you got to remember when you're raising your children, it's a period of sacrifice. So you're going to have to give up money. You're going to have to give up time. You're going to have to give up some of your relationships. You're going to have to give up a lot of your hobbies and, and leisure pursuits. Why? Because raising your children to be disciples of Jesus is the single most important thing you will ever do. It needs to be the top priority in your life. And so you can catch up with those other things once your children, once they're disciples of Jesus and they're going out in the world and they're living like Christ, you can catch up on those other desires of yours later on in life. But you chose to have children. Choices have consequences. One of the consequences here is You've got to do everything you can to honor God 
with and through the life of your child. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Barna. Uh, I want to highly recommend your book, Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul. Uh, this book is available anywhere that you want to get Christian books. Uh, I also want to recommend that if you, uh, and I want to say every parent needs to read this, every church leader needs to read it. It's seriously one of the most important books that I've seen come out in a long time. Uh, but I also want to recommend that if you have a conference or an event, uh, I don't know of a message that is more important than this message. And I know, Dr. Barna, you don't do a lot of conference speaking, but I, I would highly recommend that Dr. Barna needs to be a keynote speaker if you have a major Christian conference. Uh, what is the best way for someone to contact you if they're interested in having you be a keynote speaker at their Christian event? Uh, they could just write to us at uh, the Cultural Research Center. I think it's info, I-N-F-O, at culturalresearchcenter.com. And uh, that that email will eventually wind its way to me and, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it. At that same place, culturalresearchcenter.com, people can get a hold of all the research that we're doing for free. We try to put it up there so that Christians are aware of what's going on. And our research is primarily about worldview, about child spiritual development, about cultural transformation. So I hope they'll take advantage of that as well. Absolutely. Again, uh, the book is called Raising Spiritual Champions. Dr. George Barna, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you, Israel. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation. For more information on Family Renewal, the writing and speaking ministry of Brooke and Israel Wayne, please visit familyrenewal.org.